Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Special edition of Mooney Goes Wild for you tonight. I want to take you back to the 31st of October last when RTE Radio launched Nature Nights, a week-long celebration right here on RTE Radio 1 of nature and biodiversity in Ireland and the people who dedicate their lives to studying and protecting the natural world. Needless to say, the Mooney Goes Wild team featured throughout the week. Indeed, we started on Monday night with a documentary about one of our most beloved nocturnal creatures of all, the barn owl. This gorgeous bird of prey, long a staple of Irish myths and legends, is a favourite of many of us. Yet, despite its popularity, its population has suffered serious declines. But, as you will hear in this extract from the documentary, presented by Terry Flanagan, at long last, efforts to conserve these ultimate nighttime hunters seem finally to be paying off. In Ireland, there are fewer than 1,000 barn owls. But as Niall says, things are improving. Recovery will be slow and will only happen with the continued help of dedicated people like Niall's Birdwatch Ireland colleague, John Lusby. I started working on barn owls back in 2006, so quite, quite a, a long time ago now. And I would say things have changed significantly since that time. I remember back in the early days of focusing on barn owls, we, we were investing a lot of effort into surveying, into trying to find nest sites. And it really was quite a, a bleak and depressing situation. I remember visiting so many absolutely ideal sites for barn owls, particularly ruined stone structures, which are perfect nesting sites for barn owls and just no signs of birds. And hearing quite often stories from farmers that birds once would have nested at these sites, but they haven't seen them in the last 10 or 15 years. And, and why do you think that was so? Well, like many uh, farmland birds in Ireland, they, they have suffered largely due to changes in agriculture, changes in farming practices. And barn owls, over the last 50 years or so, they've been on a continuous, slow population decline. And, and, and it really kind of hit the kind of lowest point there about 10 years ago. And it was particularly the case in certain parts of the country. So Munster really remained to be the stronghold and barn owls were, you know, we're holding on, we're do, still doing reasonably well there. But in other parts of the country, you know, even, even from talking to farmers on the ground, they just wouldn't have seen barn owls in 20 years or more. Or, as I say, many suitable nest sites, but just no sign of birds, really. That must have been very depressing. It was, and I remember even at the time, it took quite a while even to find the first nest site when we started our survey work. And I remember the thrill of, you know, finding pellets, finding signs of barn owls at the it was a castle. And uh, again, to compare that to now, where we have so many nest sites dotted around the country, it really is a remarkable turnaround and a very, very different situation. And it's great to be able to say that because many other farmland birds, the declines have continued. They're still a crisis point and, you know, and things have got worse. Whereas at barn owls, thankfully, things have changed for the positive. But you have done a lot to improve that, not just you, but you and lots of other dedicated people by putting in barn owl nest boxes. Absolutely. And there's been a range of conservation measures that we have implemented. Nest boxes being one of them. And I would say that there's such goodwill towards barn owls in Ireland. So people have really got on board to help them out and that's one of the, the easiest measures to take is to provide a safe and secure nest site to put up a barn owl nest box and it's been a fantastic conservation success with nest boxes actually this year we're going to reach over 150 pairs using nest boxes around the country many of those put up by individuals by farmers by local conservation groups and that has been definitely a help for barn owls providing uh, uh, suitable nest sites in suitable areas and that has been one of the, the conservation measures which has worked Now these nest boxes they're not just like a nest box that you put 
up for a glue tit they're a bit more complex they are they're, they're quite a substantial structure you, you need to know what you're doing there's quite a bit of effort involved it's a two person job to install them and also as well with barn owl nest boxes it's all about the placement and need to be in suitable sites so areas where barn owls are naturally you know uh, investigating like old farm buildings like uh, you know ruined structures like that and also where they're suitable habitat and, and, and free from disturbance obviously we only want to put them in places where barn owls will do well and where there's sufficient prey sufficient hunting and no disturbance and an unusual aspect too is that a lot of these nest boxes are placed indoors that's right yeah and I mean just like their name implies they're the, the types of sites that they would naturally investigate and particularly farm buildings and, and the one thing with uh, nest boxes is that obviously ruined stone structures are ideal for barn owls but as those buildings are being lost in the countryside and obviously you know more modern farm buildings are less suitable for wildlife such as you know hay barns galvanised sheds there's less opportunities for wildlife in those buildings but that's very easy to change by putting up a nest box and most of the nest boxes actually that we now know are used by barn owls are actually in those types of buildings in hay barns in, in, in particular which is fantastic because that's you know buildings that previously weren't suitable for barn owls and now are and now they're home to to breeding pairs. So the introduction of barn owl nest boxes has been delivering results. However, there are still a number of other threats that these birds face. One being the widespread use of rodenticides. But how serious is this problem? I would say it's it's very serious and not only for barn owls but for a huge range of wildlife in Ireland and I suppose just to, to take a back step for where the problems occur with rodenticides so obviously barn owls feed to a large extent on rodents on rats and mice and other small mammals and they can be exposed to rat poisons because of that so if you think you know people obviously put out um, rodenticides or rat poisons not to harm barn owls or other wildlife but to target specifically commensal rodents so, so brown rat and house mouse but obviously these poisons can be indiscriminate so the rats and mice can feed on the poisons but then they will have the toxins in their system and if barn owls or other predators feed on them then these poisons are passed on they bioaccumulate and we carried out a study previously to look at the exposure to rodenticides in barn owls and quite quite shocking findings so we found that um, over 88% of the birds that we tested had rodenticides in their systems had been exposed to rodenticides so I would say it's, it is a, 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 a serious issue in the Irish countryside and also as well not only for barn owls but for a wide range of, of wildlife One way farmers can overcome this poison problem is to encourage barn owls to nest on their land. By doing so, the owls will remove the need for poisons. After all, they are nature's own rodenticide, and a stunningly effective one at that. Nicky Murphy is a farmer in County Kilkenny. He recently discovered barn owls on his land and has encouraged them to stay by providing them with their own nest box. So what has he noticed since their arrival? Well, the difference to me is I don't use any rodenticide since we discovered we had the owls because uh, secondary kill is a, a big thing with owls. So we give up using the rodenticide. Now, would you have been using much rodenticide a year? Uh, we were using two and a half, ten kilo buckets every that's a, year. That's a fair amount. That's a lot of uh, rodenticide. And we give it up and we actually have less vermin on the farm now than we had then because... Before the owls were here, we, we would see vermin in the daytime. Now we don't ever see vermin. That's very good for you then on the farm. It, oh, it is, yes. It is. If you let nature come to itself, it will balance itself out. And where you have a lot of meal, uh, you have meal and, and feeders and things, you'll always have vermin. But I have seen owls resting on gates in the yard and things, and they're hunting. 
They're right. doing the work. That's, you don't need a resenticide if you have owls. And of course, where you are, your house is literally 50 metres from that nest box. So apart from the good that they're actually doing, you can sit in in the evenings and you can watch them. Well, I can sit on my couch and look at the owls out through the window of the front of my house. They're that close to the... You can see them going in and out, no problem. And the amount of uh, vermin that they bring in in the night time is fascinating. You'd see them there because we have sensor lights on the front of the house and sometimes the lights had cut on and you'd see the owls going in with the food hanging out of their mouth. And do you ever find the owl pellets? You'd find the owl pellets under the nest box when to be reared the chicks in it and the, you'd see what they're eating as well because you'd, you'd discover the little bones what they'd be eating and our owls here are feeding on the white toothed shrew an awful lot. Oh, so you've plenty of white toothed shrew here. Yes, but like the little pellets, you wouldn't believe it. The, the, all the little bones, yeah. they're, they're magnifying glass bones if you want to call and I have video on my phone of the parents bringing in uh, seven prey items into the chicks in five minutes. So they're really doing good here on the farm for you? Oh yes, they're hunting the whole time. And they would have been catching them here on your land? Oh yes, on the land, yes. And that again helps to reduce the amount of rodenticide that you have to use? Well, I don't use any rodenticide now. Zero rodenticide on the farm. And the brother in the piggery doesn't use it either. Do you hear them squealing? Oh yes, when you go out in the night time there you'd hear, you'd hear the Pacific squeal and people used to say years ago, oh did you hear the banshee? But it wasn't the banshee, it was the owl was making the high pitched squeak. And could you actually see the owl when the owl is making this sound? Sometimes you would see them in the trees there and they'd be calling to one another. But when the owl is bringing in food you would hear the chicks squealing for the mother. And you would get a very high vocal point at that stage. So if you're sitting in your sitting room and you hear this sound, you know it's time. Look out the window. Yeah, the mother is coming with food. And they were successful in fledging this year? Yes, they were successful this year. How many fledged? We had four fledged this year. They're gone only about three weeks now at this stage. And they were in the trees all around the place every evening. And during the winter, would you see them on the farm? Yes, you would. When I'd go out, I would be watching for them. If you're not observant of owls, unless they fly in front of you, you won't see them. You won't know what to look for. Mm-hmm. And where would you see them on the farm? Would you see them indoors or outdoors? You'd or? see them in trees or you'd see them on a ledge or on the roof or somewhere like that. So it's a big bonus for you to have these owls then on the farm? Oh, yes. It is a huge bonus. Besides what good they're doing for to keep the vermin down on the farm... They're so therapeutic to look at. There's, there's something special to see them. And you can see something moving, but there is no sound whatsoever. It is fascinating. Fascinating indeed. Farmer Nicky Murphy and John Lusby of Birdwatch Ireland speaking with Terry Flanagan for his Barnell documentary, which was broadcast on Monday the 31st of October. For our second contribution to Nature Nights, we delved into the nocturnal life of plants. We know that many animals prefer to venture out at night, but did you know that there are also plenty of plants that only really spring into action under the cover of darkness? Relying on pollinators such as moths and bats, there are even some flowers that bloom solely at night. A true wealth of botanical wonder that goes unnoticed by most of us. In our second Nature Nights feature, Aina Nilauna met with Dr Matthew Jebb, Director of the National Botanic Gardens in Glasnevin. Here I am in my favourite part of Dublin, 
because I'm a botanist. Now, where would botanists like to be? But the botanic gardens. And it's really dark. I can't hardly see a thing. Now, there's, there's, light, there's lights along the path, thanks be to goodness. So it's lighting my way up, and I'm on my way to the curvilinear glasshouse because at night time, I want to know what happens to the plants. Now, you might think they do nothing. After all, plants grow in the light, and when there's no light, are they asleep? What are they doing when they're asleep? Are they asleep? Does anything happen to them? So who better to meet and discuss this whole matter with than Matthew Jebb, who is the director of the Botanic Gardens. And here he is. I see him inside waiting for me. How are you, Matthew? Hey there. Come on up. I'm here. It's really dark. I've come up to the Botanic Gardens to talk to you about what plants do at night. Do they go asleep? There's no light. Or are they doing all sorts of weird and wonderful things inside in this lovely curvilinear glasshouse that we're standing outside? Are we going in there first? We are. We're going to go in there in a moment. But I first want to show you a couple of things. Of course, nobody comes to the garden at night because you can't see the flowers. And just here on the lawn, do you see all these little daisies? Yeah, 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 yes, indeed. They've closed up their flowers. All their little petals have closed up over the top of the flower, which, of course, gives it its English name, Day's Eye. It's only a, a little eye on the lawn in the middle of the day. And during a dark period, maybe clouds even on the, you know, a rainy day, daisies close up their petals, just yeah. like they're doing now. Yeah, and of course, it's the same in Irish. The Irish for a daisy is nonin. And known is the Irish word for the middle of the day. So nonin, obviously, they do awake in the middle of the day and not awake on the other days. But how do they know it's dark? And how do they close their petals? Well, that's the extraordinary thing. There are a lot of plants that appear to exhibit what are often referred to as sleep movements. Now, we know that plants don't actually sleep. In fact, as I'll tell you later, plants are very, very active in the dark. But there is a feature of plants known as sleep movements, and we can see it on this little bush. This is a little legume from Europe. And do you see, all of the leaves have folded down. It looks as though... It needs it to is, go dose of water. Exactly. It, it looks, looks as, as if it's dried out. Completely yeah. wilted. But it hasn't. It's actually moved its leaves. And this feature of sleep movements is very common in the pea family. And that's because their leaves are beautifully pre-adapted. They've got little pulvini, which means like a pillow, a little pillow at the base of each leaf. And when it's pumped full of water, it pushes the leaflet up. And when it takes the water out of this little pillow, the leaf folds down. So essentially, these leaves have folded down for the night and back they'll come in the day. And what people think, because we don't know for sure what the plant is doing, but endless observations suggest that in the tropics especially, by folding your leaves down, suddenly you open the the canopy up for a bat flying through or geckos moving about at night and they pick off the little predators imagine a weevil a little beetle walking around on a leaf it's chewing the leaf but if the leaf folds downwards it it just can't get a good grip and it drops off so it may well be that this is a beautiful adaptation to actually clearing out all the the little pests on a tree canopy and allowing predators to move in and of course having a flat leaf in the day is great because you're catching the sunlight that's what the plants are feeding on whereas at night you don't need to catch the light and in fact it seems that this trick of sleep movements may be an elegant way of shedding your predators anyway what were we going to see in the glasses i'm perished exactly let's Let's get into the wall here we go yes i didn't know i didn't know you could go into your glass houses at night 
nice, but obviously you can. Now you've got the keys, you see, you can do anything you like. <laughs> well, when you're Mr. Director of the Botanic Gardens, I'm sure you can. So now, we're going in here, let's have a look. Can you open the door and go in? So this is the lovely Corby Linear glass house, isn't it? Who is this one designed by? This is Richard Turner's creation, uh, a wonderful building. And it's one where we can enjoy a little bit of warmth. So it's a tropical one, a good one to pick. <laughs> it's really warm in here. And not only is it warm, there's a great smell off the plants. That lovely sort of wet, muggy smell off the plants. Lovely. But what are they doing here at night in the dark? Uh, you know that extraordinary moment, if you get up before dawn, there's a smell in the air that is wonderful. And one of the amazing things is plants have got little pores on the bottom of their leaves and they open them just before dawn. And these little pores are where the carbon dioxide goes into the leaf, which, of course, in photosynthesis is then turned into sugars with sunlight. And it's as though the plants are able to foretell that the sun is coming up in an hour's time. And what plants have got is an extraordinary rhythm in their leaves. They know to open up these little pores on the underside of their leaf called stomata to allow the carbon dioxide in just before dawn. And it, it's a rhythm that is not interrupted by being putting them in total darkness so they can remember to do this day after day. So but it's sort of to... a circadian rhythm, it as is. it were, it, yeah. And circadian literally means nearly a day. So it's slightly out, it's a bit shorter than a day. Circa, but every quite, yeah. day... When the sun comes up, they reset their little clock, and that is how they're able to trap dawn coming up. So they, they, they know it's going to be bright in an hour's time, so these stomata open up. Getting ready for the day. And, and does this and, cause a smell? Well, one wonders about it, because, yes, suddenly all these plants have opened up their pores. So that's what they do then when it's going to be the daylight. But there are plants that do produce a smell at night. I know when I used to go to the pub, you'd walk off by the country hedges into the pub, you'd be grand. And then coming home by the same country hedges, the same way on the way home, the smell of the honeysuckle, like you didn't smell on the way to the pub. Now, it wasn't because the drink made your sense of smell any better. Those plants were now giving off a smell because it was dark. And that is something that intrigued Charles Darwin. Because Darwin noticed that these fragrant flowers at night, for example, tobacco and honeysuckle, he thought, well, why is that? And so he would go and observe at night these plants, and he noticed that moths were the primary pollinator of something like the honeysuckle. It is visited by these moths flying at night. And in recent studies on moths, where you capture moths and then you take a little cotton bud and you, you stroke them all over to get the pollen grains off them, they found that moths have more species of plant pollen on them than bees and butterflies during the day. So it is apparent that moths are busier pollinators than the, the day shift of of bees. Ah, no, but they're, they're only busy looking for food, they're looking for nectar. They don't know they're pollinating. They put their heads into the flower for a free drink, they're on a pub crawl. And because the pub doesn't have enough in any one particular pub, they have to go from one to the next. And they bring their hairy head covered in pollen by accident from one to another. And therefore, moths are actually more important pollinators than all of those day-flying insects. And it is an amazing observation. And it's something we've been slightly ignorant of because, again, we have to blame Charles Darwin with this because he noticed that all flowers conform to a particular pattern and moth-pollinated flowers have star-shaped white flowers. And that's the reason for that is the moth can pick them out. And it, not only that, but 
the moth can also find the centre of the flower. But sometimes I've noticed again about the, with the honeysuckle in Ireland, they're not all white. Some of them are yellow, Matthew. Yes, and when you look at the honeysuckle in the day, you'll see bright white flowers that opened just last night. And you'll see these pale yellowish flowers, which opened two nights ago. And that is because, again, they're very clever, these flowers. They are acting as males on the first night and they're giving out lots of pollen grains. And on the second night, they open their little stigmatic surface, which is going to receive the pollen from a visiting moth. So they're always encouraging moths to go to the newly opened male flowers. And then yesterday's flowers have turned into females, so to speak, and they're receiving the pollen. This ensures pollen goes from one plant to the next. And this cross-pollination is very important in maintaining genetic diversity. Well, obviously, you don't want to be pollinating yourself now, do you? But of course, that's a handy trick. And a lot of plants, if they don't get pollinated by somebody else's pollen, they've got means to make sure they self-pollinate and produce their own seeds, whatever. And it's a very efficient way of making sure that even if you can't cross-pollinate, you will produce some seeds for next season's crop. And maybe have better luck next year with meeting a suitor as such. But there's not much genetic variation in those kind of seeds, really. So cross-pollination really is needed for variety, isn't it? Yes, and a group of plants that we're going to go and just visit now. I just want to take you into the succulent house because we've got a lot of cacti there. Mm. And these notoriously are night flowerers. And they're nearly all pollinated, not by moths, but by bats. And are there bats in there as well as the cactus? Alas, no. If only we had these bats. But, you know, in the American deserts where the cacti live, huge numbers of bats roost in caves and under bridges. And they just swarm across the desert in the nighttime, pollinating, dispersing fruit, feeding on nectar. They're really active. So the desert is a very lively place at night. So we're going off to the pretend desert here in the Botanic Gardens where we will see the cactus. In other words, the cactus house. Yes. Leon MacDuff, let's go. This way. Well, this is much cooler here altogether. Right here, see this big barrel cactus? Yeah, Aina. And yes, look at the yes, size do, yeah. of that flower up there. Yeah, it's sticking out the side flower. of it, yeah, indeed. So it's a good eight or nine inches long, that flower. And it blooms literally for one night. Now, some of these night flowering cacti are astonishing. They take years and years, sometimes a century to grow to a big size. And then when they start blooming, you know, they will do it year after year. And bats will fly out into the middle of the desert because you can feel now it's quite cool in here. Oh yeah, this is this is not the tropical. So we don't need we don't need to heat the cactus house at night. You know, the hot days are great for these plants, but it's the cool nights are also very important to them. And this plant will do its flowering at night, being pollinated by bats, because the middle of the desert, in the middle of the day, is so hot, so dry. There are very few insects about. They're all hiding under the sand the ones that can tolerate it out there. And uh, the bats come out into the desert during the night and pollinate the flowers. So it's an excellent way of having your flowers pollinated by something that can fly long distances that's, that's absent during the day. So night flowering is often accompanied with things like moths and then bats. And again, like the moths, the bats are coming to these flowers to drink nectar. They're nectar-drinking bats. They're not like the bats in Ireland, which are insect eaters. These ones are actually seeking these flowers to get nectar for their sustenance. And not only that, but a lot of these um, 
bat-pollinated flowers also produce fruits that tend to be bat-pollinated. And one of the best examples is bananas. Bananas are bat-pollinated, and then the fruits are bat-dispersed. So it's all go at night. No plants are lying asleep doing nothing, waiting until dawn. They're all at it, hell for leather. And here I am in the cactus house, admiring those wonderful flowers, just waiting for the bats to come along now. I know, and that, you know the pleasure of these when these blooms happen. It's every few weeks one of these cacti will produce a big swarm of flowers, and it's a, it's a wonderful sight. Dr. Matthew Jebb speaking with Ainan Ilana about the nocturnal life of plants. On Wednesday, the 2nd of November, Nile Hatch went in search of the urban fox. Many nocturnal mammals have evolved exceptional powers of hearing and smell, depending far less on eyesight than diurnal creatures such as us humans. A case in point is the red fox, a common creature all across Ireland, yet one that can be hard to spot unless you happen to live in a city. Somehow, many become accustomed to urban life, with some even dwelling right in the heart of our capital and thriving side by side with people. For this Nature Night segment, Nile Hatch travelled to the bustling grounds of Trinity College Dublin, long home to generations of these wild canines. There, he spoke to the university's Environmental Services Coordinator, David Hackett, and Dave Wall of the National Biodiversity Data Centre, about the secret life of the urban fox. Please excuse the noise. I'm in a very busy part of Dublin City at the moment, just walking on College Green towards the hallowed main entrance of Trinity College, one of the most famous learning institutions in the whole world. Uh, I grew up not too far from here, and people might be surprised to realise that Dublin is a wonderful place for nature. What brings me to Trinity College here this evening is to try and find out more about one of my favourite animals of all time, the red fox, or the urban fox as people may know it. Uh, Dublin is surprisingly good for foxes, probably the best place in all of Ireland I would say, at least the easiest to see them, because they become so accustomed to people that they actually come out in the open, they're not that frightened of us, and so a lot of people will report them here more commonly than they would elsewhere in the country. Now it's a very common animal all across Ireland, loved by some, hated by others, uh, but never boring. A really beautiful creature to, to my eyes, I really like to see them here, and Trinity College is actually home to a den of foxes. So they actually breed here right in the heart of Dublin City. Dublin, wonderful place for wildlife, a part of the UNESCO Biosphere Reserve to show how that how important it is for wildlife. But who would have thought you would have a carnivorous mammal like this, an apex predator in Ireland, right in the heart of the city. Uh, so I'm here to learn more about them today and particularly how they manage the nighttime because nighttime is when foxes really come to life. And at this time of night, this is when foxes are feeling hungry, they're on, on the prowl. At a university like this, there's quite a bit of food around the place. And in an urban setting, of course, there's an abundance of food, which is why these animals thrive. But they do face other challenges. And I'm looking forward to learning more about those tonight. My name is David Hackett, and I'm the Environmental Services Coordinator in the Estates and Facilities Department of Trinity College. My name is Dave Wall, and I'm with the National Biodiversity Data Centre. And I was a former student here in the 90s. David, thank you for meeting me. So where exactly are we without giving too much away? Just inside the wall of the college along the NASA Street perimeter and the traffic sounds that you may be picking up is from NASA Street. This is where one of our two foxes had um, a family earlier on this year. Sadly, because it's also in the vicinity, there's also St. Patrick's Well. They lost one of the cubs due to drowning in the well. But it's a secluded area, but they don't seem to have an issue with students and people because they 
regularly will sit and bask on the roof gardens and the lawns when students are there. And even when they were learning their ropes and things, they used to climb the scaffolding stairs to the rubrics building that is still being renovated and spend their time in the attic. And then when the builders would come back in the next morning, they'd be quite happy there beside them and they'd be still kangooing away the old plaster and everything to do the renovations. So they are very tame in the college. I'm sure that's something that the builders weren't expecting. And to be honest, I wouldn't have expected this abundance of wildlife here, especially a, a carnivorous mammal, a predator like a fox. But I know they're here because I can actually smell them. They have such a distinctive odour. It's really sort of pungent, musky kind of smell. And that's often the first sign that they're around. But I'm sure that a lot of people don't ever realise, many of the students indeed wouldn't even realise they're walking right past these animals. No, but the fox who's living on this side and has this side of the campus as his territory is named by college and the college students and is known as Prince. Um, we are not 100% sure that uh, Prince is actually the male. <laughs> um, it is just one of those things but it is a simple name and it works well so the students all recognize him and at times and even as projects there's regular um, art things to do with actually drawing prints somewhere in the environment where they see him in campus. So it ties the students in a little bit more into nature and what's happening around them so they actually have to stop and look and listen for them. Where I grew up in County Dublin, I got very used to seeing foxes in the back garden. My mother's house still has foxes all the time there. And when I tell this to people in other countries, particularly around Europe, a lot of their reaction is, is fear. People think, oh, it's a dangerous animal, it's vicious, it's going to harm you. I think maybe in, in other countries, particularly in mainland Europe, there's an association with rabies, which thankfully we don't have to deal with here in Ireland. So maybe I can understand that. But I've always been fascinated by just how easy it is for them to coexist with humans. I suppose here in the college, there must be an abundance of food. Do you have any idea what they're feeding on mainly here? Yes, if I go back a couple of years um, where they raised a litter under some porta buildings that we had um, and when they had moved on and um, we went in to clear it out and we were finding a lot of pigeon and rodent carcasses. So the other good side to it when I think about my day-to-day -day hat is that they are helping control what most people would think of as vermin pests because they are actually catching them, killing them and eating them and in the summer feeding them to their young and teaching them how to control the vermin. There will be bits and pieces where students um, leave food and so on um, and we've also worked out that they've actually when we had our waste bins which are the large commercial ones with the lid split in half, they were able to work out how one would jump, hit the lid, and the other would jump in. But now, um, to stop them getting trapped and causing problems for uh, cleaning staff and things when they come in and start work at uh, five o'clock in the morning and are bringing the waste out and things, and particularly in the winter, they might get frightened um, from a fox jumping back out because it can't get the lid back open to get back out sometimes. We have changed that and we've put foot pedals in to make it easier for staff and students to put the waste in but harder for the wildlife to actually get in and get it, particularly for the organic food bins. I'd say you get some fright of fox rocketing out of a bin in the morning when you open it there. 
Dave Wall, you're with the National Biodiversity Data Centre and I'm sure you must get lots and lots of records of foxes. Do we know much about the population of foxes in urban areas here in Dublin and elsewhere in Ireland? And how does that compare with the population elsewhere in the country? Despite getting lots and lots of records, we still understand very little about the urban fox population in Dublin and other cities because we don't just get urban foxes here. We get them in Belfast and Limerick and in Cork and elsewhere. We have lots of records. I mean, there's something like 11,000 fox records on, on the national database, which isn't bad for a largely nocturnal species. But we still, I mean, I studied foxes here in Trinity in these hollowed halls back in the 90s, and we still don't know that much more about them than we did then. Um, we know that their density varies across Dublin. Some areas have very high densities, and I suspect maybe this area is one of them, where you might have several fox family groups per kilometre squared. Some areas have quite low densities. You mentioned there about foxes being nocturnal, and that's certainly the way they appear to be throughout most of Ireland and throughout most of their, their, their range across the world. But I've noticed in Dublin particularly, it's not unusual to see foxes out during the day. Are they changing from their nocturnal habits because of the abundance of food here in the city, or, or what's going on? Oh, foxes are quite prepared to be active during the daylight. In fact, they're most active at dawn and at dusk. But where an area is quiet and there's not much disturbance and they feel sufficiently safe to do so, they'll quite happily come out during the day and be about their business. That's why you get a lot of reports from people of foxes in their back garden during the day, sunbathing and eating food and whatever else they get up to. But by and large, where there's a lot of people around, they'll tend to be a bit more cautious and they'll come out maybe at dusk They'll suss out the place, so the foxes here may emerge a little later on tonight. They'll probably wait around to make sure the coast is clear, and then they'll head out foraging. Now, as David explained earlier, there's actually two fox families in Trinity. When I was a student back in the 90s, they were more down the other end, the science end. Uh, these foxes are up the arts end. But they, in fact, may be related, because it's not uncommon. Air densities are high for members of the same fox family group to remain in the territory and either help with rearing current litter or they will, if there's plenty of food about, they may rear their own litter within the same territory or within the same area. But David said earlier that these foxes have been estimated to be around for five years. That's quite old for a fox. Uh, certainly urban foxes have very short lifespans. There's a lot of things out there to get you if you're an urban fox or indeed any fox. They include traffic, as we heard earlier. Uh, if you're in the countryside, there's quite high hunting pressure. If you're in the city, there's other nasties like poison and falling down wells, for example, that can get you. So the average lifespan for an urban fox is actually less than a year, maybe two years if they're really lucky. Five years is quite old. Anything over five years is pretty ancient if you're a fox. How important are their senses to them and how do they, how do they use those to, to make their way in the world? Well, we live in a visual world. We've got excellent vision, colour vision. We can see every nook and cranny, every detail. It's wonderful. If you're a fox, that's not the case. Their colour vision is quite poor. They don't see the full range that we see. And their distance vision is quite blurry. So they're not very good at picking things up, even a couple of metres away. Their up-close vision seems to be relatively good because they can make their way up through brambles and around obstacles, etc. But their stronger senses are hearing. They have very good sense of hearing. So if you want to get near foxes, the first thing you have to do is be quiet. Um, super quiet because they'll pick up any sort of movement you make, any noise you make, they'll pick that up. Their second sense is smell. They have a very acute sense of smell, so you always need to be downwind of a fox so that it doesn't get a whiff of you. They do have some 
nighttime adaptation in terms of their vision in that they have a special layer in their eye which refocuses the light. So the light comes into their eye through the light detecting cells. It bounces off this layer and goes back through the eye a second time. So they kind of double up on their nighttime vision, which enables them to see better in the dark. And it's also what gives them that eerie green light effect when you see them in the headlights of a car. And also touch. They've got whiskers that are very sensitive and indeed sensitive hairs all over their body that they can use for detecting where they are as they go through down Sundrago. Famously, they have that big bushy tail. Does that play any important role in their lives? It's a good question. Um, it certainly seems to play a role in balance. A fox can get anywhere, almost anywhere, that a cat can get. And that's why people are constantly surprised about finding them on the tops of buildings, up trees, on the roofs of their sheds, or the fact that they're surrounded by a six foot high wall and yet the fox comes in every night because they have an immense agility. They can jump over six foot high walls, no problem at all. And of course, if you do those kind of acrobatics, the butty tail is going to have some impact on your balance and presumably it plays some role there as well. Well, I imagine there's probably a fox watching us right now, wondering what these strange people are doing, chatting away while it wants to come out and feed. So maybe we should move on and let them have, the, have this little secluded part of Trinity College themselves again. What do you think? Yeah, maybe so. I mean, it's, it's just about the right time for them to start emerging, especially in a nice, quiet spot like this. I'm sure if we weren't here, they'd already be peeking their little noses out, having a sniff, seeing what was going on. As soon as we clear off, they'll probably start having a rummage about, and then they'll start making their way on their nightly rounds. And the thing about foxes is, if you see them in a particular place on one night, you have a very good chance of seeing them in the exact same place the next night, because they're quite habitual in doing the rounds, especially where food is involved. So literally creatures of habit. Indeed. Excellent. Well, Dave and David, thank you so much for meeting me here. I've really enjoyed this. So let's, let's leave it to the foxes, I suppose. Wonderful stuff. Thank you very much indeed, Niall Hatch and the two Davids, Dave and David, at Trinity College Dublin looking for the red fox. Now, our final contribution to Nature Nights had to do with the night sky. Our ancestors were highly accustomed to spending significant portions of their lives in darkness. Like most creatures on the planet, we evolved physical, mental and behavioural changes triggered by the setting and rising of the sun. These circadian rhythms, as they are called, consist of natural processes that respond to predictable patterns of light and dark. In our modern world, however, overexposure to light at night has become something of a problem, both for us and for our fellow animals. For this Nature Night segment, Richard Collins spoke with Etta Daneman, founder of Visit Dark Skies, about the fundamental importance of our relationship with the night sky. Etta, international dark sky parks are being established. What is their function? Why do we need them? So in the past, there have been many places where you could actually see the whole amount of stars without light pollution. But in the last century, there has been an enormous increase in artificial lighting. So there's a movement called Dark Sky Movement, and the aim is to protect the places where you can actually see the whole amount of stars or see the natural night sky. So International Dark Sky Places is a program of the International Dark Sky Association, which is one of three certification organizations that try to create programs that help nature parks to protect their night skies. 
If one can't see as many stars as one could in the past, is that important? That is important for several reasons. If you see it from a human perspective, there's a lot of culture, cultural stories related to the night sky. So it's just very sad if you lose connection to the stars and to the idea that we live on a planet. And I think it's important to show children the night sky as well and also to somehow get the connection to that. But there's not only the human perspective. A lot of nature parks actually aim to protect the night sky because of their animals, because two-thirds of mammals are actually night active and artificial light at night destroys their natural setting and, and disrupts some of their activities. In rural areas, animals would not be much affected by light pollution, whereas in cities they would be. Is there any evidence that city light is doing damage to the animal community? If you look at the intersection between humans and animals, you can look at um, several places. Let's take, for example, tourism places, right, where you have a coast that is usually at night, should be dark, and then tourism industry comes and, and places hotels that are lit and, and promenades that are lit at night. And then you have an interference with animals in, in that area. And that can be a quite remote area, but suddenly it's lit. Then we have insects. Insects, of course, are not that affected in rural areas, but they are important in cities as well. Um, and in all the places where we have streetlights, we lose some insects um, due to the effect of streetlights. And the list could, could uh, go on. Of course, we have um, the Twin Tower. Uh, I think you all know this um, very famous light installation, which is great from an artistic point of view, but um, there's an, a huge issue by that this installation interferes with um, birds that are crossing New York at that time of the year and um, there's even an agreement then that after uh, a thousand birds are trapped into the Twin Tower lighting it needs to be shut down for 20 minutes. You've made a very convincing case that animals are profoundly affected. Is there an advantage to humans going out, lying on the ground and looking at the night sky as you recommend? And you have an app which assists people doing that. What is the value of that? What happens when you do that? Actually, it's a quite a basic activity that I uh, conceived. It's called guided stargazing and it's helping you to really stargaze for 30 minutes and that immerses yourself in a different way into the night sky. So the eyes take 30 minutes to adapt fully to darkness. And I think that's a biological competence that we rarely use. And when you do that, that you watch for 30 minutes towards the night sky, you perceive the sky in its entirety and it gets much more three-dimensional. You see more stars because your eyes are capable to let more light in after 30 minutes. And that 
that is only the biological thing. And of course, it connects you with your peers that you're doing this with. Um, I recommend doing it in a remote area. So you lie on the grass and you you might even point your, your head a little bit towards your back. So then you really have the feeling of being on the planet and and that might, you know, shift your perspective even on your life or on nature. And it's a wonderful, relaxing experience. In a sense, are you trying to abolish time? When you look up at the night sky, you're not seeing a state of affairs that exists now. If you look at Betelgeuse in Orion, you're seeing it as it was 600 years ago. If you look at the star at the opposite end, Rigel, it's something like 850 years ago. And I once saw the Andromeda Galaxy, at least I think I did, many years ago in the west of Ireland, and that's 2.4 million years back. So when I look at the sky, I'm seeing something that's quite timeless. It's eternal. Time is gone because everything is out of phase with everything else time-wise. Is this the kind of experience you have, that sense of eternity? You're no longer tied to a flow of time and a succession of events. Is that the kind of experience you're talking about? Of course, it has these... If you're exposed to such time spans, you get a different perspective on your short time on Earth, right? And suddenly... You might think about life and death and you might think about the time that you have here on Earth. I think that has a beauty and it, it might even scare you a little bit, but it might also create a, a new presence and, and the strong feeling of being in the moment uh, with the person that, that is with you. It's timeless, in other words. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's true. It's timeless. If I were to go out and lie on the ground and look up at the sky for the next half hour with your app, what would it say to me? What things would it point out? How would it help the experience? So the first part is a story about the Big Dipper. So most people know the Big Dipper, but not many more constellations or stars. So we start from there. Um, most people know where it is. And then we are searching the North Star. Um, we are telling some Greek mythology uh, about the Big Dipper. We are also pointing out that the Big Dipper actually is not the full constellation. And you can only see the full constellation of the Great Bear Um in dark places, dark sky places. And um, we also have a story from how, how the, the Sami um, perceived the Big Dipper or, or what was their story. And we have a story about the um, famous photo Hubble Deep Field. Um, so that's 15 minutes and it's, it's more fact-based cultural stories introduction. And then after 15 minutes, 15, 20 minutes, your eyes have quite well adapted. And then we start the second part of the experience. And that's more a perception exercise. You start with one star and then you get broader and broader. And uh, we encourage you to, to look 
um, really in detail to the stars at the beginning and then get broad and and relaxed so you use the the peripheral vision that is much stronger when you're dark adapted so that after these this 10 minute exercise you see a full sky above you a really a, a very broad sky and then there's some music and the personal question at the end and it faint, it's fainting out so you can enjoy the night sky with that new vision that you have gained Is this a guide to the stars or is it a cultural lecture on significance of stars in human history and myth and so forth? So I would say it's a it's a private event, right? If you are in in such a remote area, uh, there's not that much to do and there's um star tours that you can do which are also great. You get uh, you have a star guide and and uh, have a group tour. And, and get an explanation. But um, sometimes um, they are booked out and, and sometimes they are not available. And also what we offer is some something different. It's a more private experience. So you have no guide next to you. Instead, you can listen to the file and it starts lecture-wise, but after 30 minutes, it's more like a meditation. Maybe so it's, it, has, it changes a little bit from knowledge-based approach to a perception-based approach. Is this an activity or simply an experience you have once or twice? It's meant for beginners that are coming to a remote place and doing stargazing for the first time. Um, but I'm doing it very often when I'm uh, traveling to dark sky places. I have also done it uh, in Ireland already uh, in Mayo Dark Sky Park. They have that great festival at the beginning of, of November, Mayo Dark Sky Festival. So I'm doing it often and I'm using the audio file myself even if I uh, have done it and I, I really know what is in it. But I use it, like you said, um, When you do a yoga session, it's also it's helpful if someone else, you know, guides you through the thing. So you can just concentrate on your movements or on your gazing. And so if this is just a help to to have no thoughts that are not uh, helpful and, and just concentrate on, on the gazing experience. Etta Dannemann, speaking to Dr. Richard Collins about the importance of dark skies. That's pretty much all we have time for tonight. My thanks to Richard Collins, to Aina Nilana, Niall Hatch and Terry Flanagan. Don't forget, you can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Until next time, goodbye. And Mooney Goes Wild was presented and produced by Derek Mooney.